0: Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen.
1: Welcome to the LRB podcast. My name is Adam Schatz, and I'm here with Michael Wood. Hello, Michael.
0: Uh, hi, Adam. How are you
1: doing? The occasion for this conversation is the publication of the eighth volume in the LRB collection series of little books. The title is from a piece uh, by Michael about Roland Barthes, The Meaninglessness of Meaning. It's a collection of of writing from the London Review of Books about the theory wars. Uh, This anthology features pieces by uh, Michael uh, and others, including Pierre Bourdieu, Judith Butler, Terry Eagleton, Richard Rorty, Lorna Sage, and John Sturrock. Michael, uh, it's great to have you here.
2: Very good to be here, here or wherever we are, uh, Adam, yes.
1: Michael is one of our great literary critics and film critics. He's a professor at Princeton University. I think that Michael has established almost a model uh, for writing about theory. So often, uh, writing about theory is as Abstruse and, and opaque as the theory itself, and Michael has written about Barthes and others with fluency and 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 elegance and and a, and a real sense of of playfulness. And so it's a it's a real pleasure uh, and an honor to be here with you, Michael. Thanks, Ed. So uh, you know, Michael, you you came up in a way in the in the in the age of theory, uh, or at a moment when. New criticism was transitioning into the age of theory. Am I right about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Actually, I was. I was uh, interesting. We should be talking about it now, Adam, because I'm just writing a piece about Frank Kermode's book, The Sense of an Ending, which appeared in 1967, and really, uh, in its way, sort of uh, jumped straight into the theory wars. or was a little ahead of the theory wars. Uh, commodity himself at, at, at university college afterwards invited roland bart and many others and there was a center of theory at university college in the in the 70s so that was something happening but what what struck me when i tried to remember this time was the sense of extraordinary complacency in england and in america before theory happened uh, it seemed as if the new criticism uh, and its sort of rival sort a kind of uh, cultural criticism represented by Lionel Trilling, say, where you look to literature for the shape of culture, the direction of culture, the meaning of history, and so on. And then there was the close reading of of, uh, of the new criticism. But the idea, I think, was that this would go on forever. It would never stop, and there were no other questions to be asked. Uh, so it was a kind of deadly moment, in a way. When, the, when theory arrived, it really was it, was... it Initially, was just another name for curiosity.
1: So, So theory really kind of shattered the... The complacency of a certain kind of Anglo-American literary criticism at the time.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, he did what he could to shatter it. Actually, the complacency was pretty, pretty solid and took a lot of shattering. And some people, some people, were never shattered. They just went on doing the same old stuff, you know. Uh, but I think younger people and graduate students certainly got excited about it. They sort of suddenly thought, oh, you can ask. You could ask questions about literature. You don't just sit there counting images.
1: This resistance uh, to theory that, that you described um, was also uh, reflected to some degree in the pages of the London Review of Books after its founding in the late 1970s. In fact, one of the uh, the first piece in this uh, volume, The uh, Meaninglessness of Meaning, uh, by Bridget Brophy, is uh, a, a rather... Uh, uh, irritable essay on uh, a book, a, a book that Colin McCabe, uh, later, you know, known as a, uh, as a film theorist and as a contributor to screen, a biographer of Godard, uh, wrote about, uh, uh, James Joyce and, uh, she she writes, uh, Mister McCabe's book resembles the proceedings of a water beetle. He <laughs> skeeters across the surface of a great many questions, bumps excitedly into a theory, and then, before examining it, shoots off to the next. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And, and actually, one of the uh, you know one of the uh, uh, appealing aspects of this collection is that it, it gives you a very vivid sense of. Of uh, the London Review of Books is relationship to theory, which has been uh, a very dynamic one. Um, it began with uh, with a certain amount of of hostility and and reflexive skepticism, and then evolved into something uh, much more appreciative. Without, however, relinquishing a certain degree of skepticism,
2: I think that's right, Adam. And I think the the skepticism was always warranted. I think, and I think, in some sense, theory uh it it had a kind of victory that was a little bit too easy because it meant you could do it or not and then you just joined the team and if you joined the team you just spoke to the people in the same church and so there was a sense of sort of uh, enclosure and people did i think a lot of people interested in theory loved the idea of being obscure uh you know, I had a student at Columbia at one point who wrote, a very clever guy who'd been a, an editor, a movie editor, and worked on The Exorcist. And he he, he was writing a, a, an MA thesis about Joseph Conrad. And he wrote a sort of 80 or 90 pages full of uh, every bit of jargon he could find. And and I, I read it, and then I said to him, do you, uh, do you understand this? And he said, no, I don't, but I thought you had to write like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so i suggested you should write something that he and i could understand and then we could take it from there
1: you know it's it's interesting that we even speak of something called theory uh to begin with and and usually by theory uh we mean french theory yes uh because uh there's really no such thing as theory uh, much less french theory In France. French theory is something that's really invented, uh, arguably, uh, in the United States in the 1970s. Uh, That's when theory really comes into being as a category. Uh, And, uh, you know, the French historian, uh, François Cusset wrote a very uh, entertaining book about the adventures of French theory in America. And he argues, essentially, that French theory is an American invention. Because so many of these theorists, as we know, uh, uh, weren't all that welcome uh, in France. They were they were outsiders. They were dissidents. Uh, Derrida never, you know, got the job that he was looking for exactly. in France, for example.
2: Exactly. Now that's a very good point, Adam. And I think the uh, the it was for a long time theory was was really just French. So it was a kind of. Catching up with all, with everything everything French. It was it was, Barthes, it was Derrida, it was Lacan, Levistors, uh, everything everything important about it. it was in France. That would be just sort of intellectual life generally, not particularly theoretical, not more theoretical than anything else. Uh, in America, it became uh, theory, and then of course other way, there are other waves of discovery. Uh, um, the Frankfurt School, uh, Benjamin. Uh, the Russian formalists, but they came after. So they came in waves. So the, I mean, they were actually earlier in time in, in their work than the French theorists. The French theorists were mainly 1960s, and the, and the wave was in the 1970s. And then the others came in. And there was another time, there was another interesting meaning of theory, Adam, which I think was more available, more um, present in England than in the States. It meant everything we're not doing. That is, if 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 the the traditional criticism was not doing feminism, or not doing Marxism, or not doing psychoanalysis, then all of those things became theory. A turn to anything that sort of questioned that that what the complacency I was describing before, anything that asked you to ask difficult questions, was thought to be, was actually was a kind of theory.
1: Now, now, theory of the kind that we're uh, describing uh, had its first uh, significant. Impact um, in universities in the in the states and in and in the United Kingdom uh, in in literature departments. Yes, but the the writers that you know were invoking, uh, Barthes and uh, Foucault and Derrida and Deleuze and others, um, they weren't literary critics, and uh, they were some were philosophers, some were historians, and and of course, uh, arguably uh, the first theorist was an ethnographer, Claude levis strauss
2: it, It's a very interesting point, Adam. and I think the, in a way, that, I don't think that was that, that um, what's, what's called a bias or a sort of a, a partiality or a partial partial view. I don't think that was ever quite corrected. I think people, people who got into theory, or, or let's say, apart from someone like Richard Rorty uh, and to some extent John Searle, there that, 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 that was no encounter between that French material in literature department and philosophy. It would have been terrific if it had really happened. If there had been a real dialogue between philosophy, because essentially uh, Anglo-American philosophy did, didn't—it wasn't continental—and they didn't like to think about Heidegger or anything like that. You know, so that there the, the was a dialogue, that never quite took place. And there were there were exceptions. Occasionally, people like Stuart Hampshire would would say something that would engage with this. But the 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 exclusivity, so to speak, of, of theory being in English departments meant that. Meant that no trained philosophers were taking a look at it, and there was a lot of so. there's a lot of amateurishness, I think, about theory in English for that reason.
1: And that divide between uh, between between continental philosophy and uh, and analytic philosophy remains. I don't think it 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 was ever really bridged, except in the work of a, of a handful of philosophers. No. no. But let's talk a little bit about how theory. Uh, emerges because it seems to me that uh, to some extent we could speak of this um, of French theory at least as a, as a revolt against uh, against Jean Paul Sartre and I'm thinking for example of the uh, essay that Claude Levi-Strauss published uh, and that was reprinted uh, in uh, The Savage Man mm-hmm. uh, about Sartre's concept of history—that that was that sort of detonated the the revolution against Sartre's historicism—and uh, and, and Sartre remained for many the the, the 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 god who had to be, or the father who had to be slain.
2: Yes, yeah, that is really key. The, that sense of that that, that uh, long quarrel between uh, levi Strauss and and Sartre was extremely interesting, and you know had many many. Facets, but one of the really interesting things about it, or to, to, to speak a little bit too simply about it, for Sartre, it, uh, Sartre and existentialism, were all about individuals, about about individual gestures, actions, responsibility, and so on. And for it's rather really interesting, that they didn't really address the system, uh, in, which is surprising for you know an old communist like 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 Sartre. But he, but it was about the individual, about making sense of the world for the individual. And what Levi Strauss was really about, and what Everything he got, both from Saussure and from his uh, ethnographical studies and so on, uh, was the sense that, look, uh, the system is there before we are. Mm. There is language as a system, kinship as a system, traffic signs are a system, Uh, everything is a system, and we have to think about the system. And I think that move is very interesting, because I think Sartre it was irresponsible. It it, it was sort of exonerating the individual. And, and Lévi-Strauss thought Sartre was not understanding the way things actually work.
1: Sure. I mean, there's there's definitely a um, a kind of anti-anthropocentric thrust to uh, Lévi-Strauss' critique of uh, of Sartre, which is later echoed uh, in some of Foucault's work. Yeah. Know, where about- Foucault writes about individuals being the effects of, of discursive systems or of capillary power or of um disciplinary power. Um, the individual in in, in in effect is a kind of uh is is more symptom than cause. Um I mean I think that you know I I I still retain some um some sympathy for Sartre and I think that that he would probably argue that uh well you know yes we we choose. And, and in choosing, we choose for others as well. But the choices we make are conditioned by the choices that other individuals make. Um, so fr- freedom is never absolute. I don't think that he ever believed in a kind of sovereign individual who who, who uh, makes decisions in, in absolute freedom. That was to some extent a, a caricature of, of Sartre's work, but maybe a necessary caricature to create the conditions for the next intellectual revolution.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it was a caricature and, and, and quite unfair to Sartre in many ways. But I think the thing that matters most about it was that it was not so much Sartre, whether it's, uh, was what Sartre was saying that he, you know, he had his say to speak. But that next moment when people discovered that we don't understand where we are because we don't understand the language that we're talking. Mm. Or, or let's say or the stuff that Deke was so on well, the language is there before we are. You know that we don't, we don't, we don't invent what we say. We borrow the words from a system,
1: right? And we don't, we don't so much. It's not that we speak; in a sense, we're spoken through.
2: And Heidegger said things like that. And, you know, Heidegger said things like that, "Die Sprache spricht" (language speaks). You know. uh, and and but I think the the important thing about it is not whether not how true it is. There are a lot many sort of limitations to that view. I think, and there are also many liabilities, which is what Sartre was interested in. I think the thing to 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 get hold of is the sheer excitement of discovering that that, that is the sense. Look, there is a system here. There is a language here, or a grammar here. We didn't know that before. Mm. That that sudden sense of oh, my lord, I I just crossed the street at a traffic light. Uh, and, and it's not just the word that I chose to cross the street. It's, there was a whole civic uh, language of, of uh, permissions and non-permissions and habits and things. And this is a language. This can be studied like a language. Right. That was the big deal. There was, a, there was a conference in, I think, 1967, I think, a conference at Johns Hopkins where all the French theorists showed up. Uh, uh, but I, it was later published as a book called The Structuralist Controversy, I think. But actually, it was already the beginning of deconstruction. I mean, I think Barthes was there, Derrida was there, Lacan was there. And there was a wonderful moment in the book. In the book, a man, I think it was Georges Poulet, a, a, a French critic of an earlier generation, said, before he asked his question, he said, I've been struck by this conference. Uh, at this conference, everybody talks about language all the time. And that was the one thing we never talked about. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sense of, say, not just language itself, but the sense that you, you, uh, you, think, you think of going to the movies, you think about directors, and somebody writes a book called The Language of Cinema. Uh, and it's a, Wherever you'd look, there was a, there was a language. Mm. And it, essentially, this goes back to Louis Strauss and to Saussure, essentially the, the notion that, that you, could, you could study the, that there is a structure or a grammar beneath the surface, uh, and Levi-Strauss would say things like, uh, structure, he would say structures, he said the antecedents of structures would be like Marx and Freud, because, because they, believe in the, they don't believe in the surface, they believe in what's just under the depth, uh, just underneath the surface. Uh, like, and geology was his other model. Geology, psychoanalysis, and, and Marxism all believed there was a structure and structure, but the structure, you can't see from the surface. So you can't tell what kind of rocks are there if you're looking at the grass.
1: Which I think became known as a kind of depth narrative. And this was something that uh, the structuralists, but even more so the post-structuralists, uh, critiqued. And and and, and Bart of course, is an exemplar of this. He began to sort of celebrate in a very sensuous manner the the surfaces uh, of of the of the text and and in fact I mean your your the title of your of your piece I think is very uh, suggestive uh, the meaninglessness of meaning it it sounds like a a, a like a, a rather flippant title but in fact it 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 gets at something that is central uh, to Barth's thinking which is this discomfort with meaning he he described meaning at some point I think as sticky heavy sticky he didn't like it. Uh, what was that about? He, said, he says at one point,
2: it's a phrase always liked, said, i always I, like. I've always wanted to be exempt from meaning, the way one is exempt from military service. Yes. You want to be, it's required. You can't actually, you know, it, you can't get out of military service if that's the law of your country. That's or you, or you could be some kind of, uh, you know, you could be a protester. You could be a conscientious objector. But he doesn't want to be a conscientious objector. He wants a certain kind of exemption from meaning or at least a rest from meaning. I think that is, in a way, a kind of French, a, a French illness or a French worry. I don't think uh, it seems a natural thing to say. I think if you're French, that 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 sort of meaning is rather regimented. It's official. It's there's a standard version of it, and so on. I'm not sure that any English speaker ever quite feels that that meaning. Pretty about other things, I think, but not about
1: meaning. I wonder if, in uh, in in Bauer's case, it also has something to do with the circumstances uh of his life he you know he he was uh uh, raised by his mother to whom he had this uh, ferociously close relationship um his you know his father had uh, died in the war uh he he was uh he was very he was very sickly child he spent a lot of his youth um in a sanatorium he was he was also gay but because of this profound attachment to his mother he never really had a uh, anything like uh, a separate relationship with a lover. there were lovers, of course, but uh, he he always he always came home to mama uh, late late in the evening. Now, of course, Baut is um, uh, writes this famous piece, which becomes notorious and I think is misinterpreted uh, on the death of the author mm-hmm. um, uh, and, I, and, I, and I think that Baut wrote that to to free the text. From uh, the tyranny of an author's intentions, to, to to kind of to liberate it to to other kinds of interpretations, even if you will other meanings. Uh, but but I but I wonder if it's if it makes sense to think about some of these thinkers in relationship to their their own stories. I mean, they are e- each of these thinkers is a v- very distinctive writer with a distinctive historical and psychological profile uh think of, of derrida for example who mm-hmm. is is a, is an algerian jew and and who has a you know this famous phrase you know about you know uh this language uh that um that i speak doesn't you know doesn't belong to me you know because french is not the language that his ancestors spoke it was a colonial imposition
2: yes yes in a certain sense, there's a continuity from Sartre here, I think, that, that is Sartre and, and actually the surrealists before Sartre represented a kind of ongoing resistance, if you like, to, to the French establishment, a very powerful cultural establishment that really you know, had its way in, in, in all kinds of ways and was always worth resisting. And I think structuralism and then, and then deconstruction picked up that sort of resistance. But I think, you, in a way, you do need to start in some slightly outsiderish sort of place, mm-hmm. uh, to, to feel comfortable doing that and or feeling feel authenticated in a way to do that. And I think that's true of all, all of these figures. That they, there, was, there was a very powerful establishment and the establishment uh, you know, made fun of them, mocked them, resisted them. Very, rather similar in a way to the, the, the way the critical establishment in English, I mean, the, the rigid Rofi mode, uh, resisted theory. Uh, except that in America, especially, theory was not particularly sort of. Uh, it, it was rather, rather conservative in a way. It often it often looked like the New Criticism in disguise, mm. and not very political. I think that wasn't true in England. I think in, in in England, on the whole, theory theory had a kind of political edge always, and in in uh, in the states too. In the work of someone like Edward Said, it had He had a political edge, but a lot of the time it was very it was very text based and esoteric and closed off. And I think. A lot of people took refuge in America took refuge in theory Anyway, you couldn't do in France. I think that, that, that dialogue that, that quarrel with a certain kind of establishment was always going on.
1: I want to return in a moment to Edward Said, who I, you know, was a, who was, I know is a very close friend of yours. Um, and, and his uh, contribution to, uh, to theory, which takes it to, uh, a different place. But before that, I wanted to, um, talk about theory as writing because, uh, uh, there's a, a, I think, a widespread um, misunderstanding in the Anglo sphere uh, that uh, that theory is was necessarily uh, difficult or self-consciously um, recondite; that it was not uh, that it lacked literary grace and so on. Whereas, if you read uh, some of the, uh, the 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 signature works um, of French theory, what you find is a group of writers who are looking for new modes of expression. Not all of them are successful, of course, uh, but this is uh, intellectual work, which uh, which slides into a kind of uh, of literature or paraliterature when you think of of Barthes, who was writing uh, th- works of theory that were almost like uh, uh, novels. Um, he never, of course, he never wrote his novel, uh, but if you read Empire of Signs or or Roland Barthes by Roland Barthes or or his uh, remarkable work uh, on photography, La Chambre Claire, the uh, um, cameron lucida the, these are these are works of literature, and so, for that matter, is some of uh, derrida's work, his engagement with genet, for example, who was a very close friend of his um, these these were writers
2: yeah there, there was a weird collusion i think in in the English speaking world there was a weird collusion between the the, the 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 proponents of theory and the enemies. they both agreed that it had to be esoteric and difficult and non literary the, the, so there was i think I mean the, the hostility was very conscious and the hostility was often based on, on what was thought to be the quality of the writing so that Judith Butler would win the annual prize for the worst sentence ever written on this sort of stuff you know um, and then uh, so the, there was a kind of conservative resistance to anything that was, wasn't just plain spoken you know just anything you, you couldn't understand immediately it wasn't worth saying and so on. Um, I kind of I think that's just a kind of philistinism but the, but the, the people who were translating theory and the people who were doing theory often thought they had to sound like Heidegger at his most obscure in order to be serious and <laughs> that seems kind of crazy it was not true of David Blair. it wasn't true about Barthes or any of those people who are actually rather good writers I think quite eloquent and I, I, Judith Butler is a good writer too I think I think sometimes you have to take risks with words and there's a wonderful phrase of uh, Barthes I was liked I thought it was a kind of motto to uh, keep yourself sane in the middle of the theory wars uh, between jargon and platitudes He would say you have to prefer jargon
1: which, which actually, you quote in your in your essay in this volume. I <laughs> oh, is not in my essay, yes,
2: <laughs> but I do like that. It's a kind of I, I've, I've, I've sat at department meetings many times, uh, muttering that phrase to myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the LRB podcast. You can buy the book discussed in this episode, "The Meaninglessness of Meaning," on the LRB store for just five pounds ninety nine where you'll also find the other seven volumes in the LRB collection series, and much more. Go to lrb.me forward slash theory. That's lrb.me forward slash theory. And if you use the code COLLECT8, that's the number 8, at checkout, you can buy all eight LRB collections for just £40. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen.
1: Now, French theory emerges in the early 1960s, and although it eventually comes to include um, some uh, remarkable uh, female practitioners as well, like the uh, mm-hmm. Bulgarian uh, Julie Kristeva, and uh, Lucy Irigaray and and others uh, at, uh, at and the Shichou, very yeah, and yeah, Siksou yeah, yeah. of course um, at the very beginning uh, it's uh, it's it's mostly a, a, a phenomenon of white European men. Uh, however, yeah. I think what's what's what I want to underscore here and what strikes me is really uh, really interesting is that at its very inception. With uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss, it it is a critique of Eurocentrism. Yes. It's almost like the European mind at its limits. Yes, My, would you would you agree with that?
2: The other figure who was very important in those days was Franz Fanon, who was, who was not a
1: mm-hmm.
2: not, not a European male, and who who uh, was in, in France was uh, but he was he was uh, the person who introduced him into France was Sartre. Sartre is the one who wrote the preface to the to the Wretched of the Earth. And so the Wretched of the Earth was often paired with the Levi Strauss work. So the, the Levi Strauss is tristopic, and the the idea of a, of, a, of other cultures, other minds, other ways of thinking, were all were already there, I think. Uh, and the structuralism itself, as early sort of the 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 essays of the of the uh, Structural Anthropology, the book is in 1955, I think. So the structuralism was beginning in the late 50s and took off in the 60s. Uh, and by the late 60s, deconstruction decided this. Are you right about that, that, that question, about what you say about death? What deconstruction decided, and, and this is again, very simplified, but deconstruction, de- the uh, de- de- deconstructionist felt that structuralism was terrific in its way, but it was too simple and too sure it had got it right. It knew what the structure was. There wasn't enough uncertainty in structuralism. And what deconstruction needed was if you put uh, if you put men versus women and said they're opposites, that you need to now complicate this by saying they're the same. Or you need to say that some men are more different from other men than they're different from women, and some men, and so on. You had to take a binary, and to deconstruct it was to find complications and, and, and destabilize. In a
1: way. Exactly, because, Der- because uh, Levi-Strauss had argued that binary thinking was at sort of the root of human thinking, and and Derrida ex- ex- very much explodes that. The The critique of ethnocentrism of course, begins with, with, with Lévi-Strauss and with his with his remarkable memoir, uh, Triste Tropique, uh, but it becomes ever more radicalized in 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 Derrida with his essay on white mythologies, for example, or um, in Foucault's work, um, which is a, very much a, a critique of, of Western liberalism. And then, of course, you have Deleuze and Guattari who are arguing that the you know that the that 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 Freudianism has been this you know system of political and intellectual domination. Uh, that the family itself, the Western family, is an apparatus of repression.
2: It's very interesting it, I mean it's it sort of. All of that, in a way, sort of announces the the, no, the kind of current resistance to any kind of to, to normativity, right? That, that, that if you think, and if you if you think if if something is a norm, you probably don't think of it as a norm. And and the the idea, I think, the constant idea of, of protest or resistance is to think if, if you if you think something is a norm, think again, or think about why it's a norm and a norm for who. It it sort of seems innocent to think this is what life is like, but actually, who are you excluding?
1: And I and I think in that regard, this um, what may seem at first glance like uh, uh, a kind of groupus school on the on the rue d'homme with yes. uh, you know Althusser and Bart and, and all these other uh, French thinkers uh, actually helps to generate uh, an intellectual revolution whose repercussions are still being felt today in the critique of as you said in the critique of normativity. Um, in the questioning of white and European supremacy, um, in the rethinking of human sexuality, uh, in the questioning of uh, the asymmetries of power between the Western world and the developing world. I mean, French theory helps to contribute to that intellectual and political revolution.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think we, in a curious way, we, uh, the the academic history here is slightly misleading, because the academic history in England and in America was a kind of uh, a kind of minority interest in theory never becomes a majority but it becomes significant and everyone has to pay attention to it whether they want to pay attention to it and then sometime maybe late in the 1990s particularly in the wake of of people returning to history with the new historicism and things like this and the idea of back to biography uh, as a sense of theory is over and then people start writing books called After Theory and this kind of stuff and and of course it was over in that sense of a kind of uh, it's, it's professional life uh, academic life it uh, was over it had been retired so to speak but there's so much work not done uh, so, so many questions so many good things about theory that had not even, had even arisen because they are too busy fighting the wrong sort of wars and then as you say the stuff that wasn't done is still with us and is often helping us with. there's there's a lot of stuff to to be done still I think with people like all of those figures about Derrida maybe Strauss to going back to them we will find stuff uh, that are very relevant we find stuff that very relevant to us now I think
1: You've had a particularly close relationship as a writer to uh Roland Barthes. What what, uh, what what is it about Barthes' work that you're so passionate about? I mean you you write about him beautifully, but I I would love to hear it in your own words.
0: Uh,
2: yes, it there's something about his his kind of the kind of restless curiosity uh and the willing the willingness to to uh to mock himself a little to be not too serious about things i mean i and I, I, uh, like any french writer of any quality uh, there are always epigrams and things so at a certain point you love the epigrams you know there's like like for example i love phrases like in in Goncourt uh, there's a wonderful phrase where he says at night the adjectives come back <laughs> you think this is, this is as good as it gets, you know. So, I but I always found that whenever I whenever I read him, or whenever I read him now, I always find there's something so interesting going on. It's a little more complicated than you thought, and it's it's keeping things open. And he was always finding things to finding things to think about. I mean, the book on photography is amazing. I think I think he's wrong-headed in all kinds of ways. He's wrong about photography, but, but but then it's not really about photography. It's really about his mother. <laughs> so it's,
1: <laughs> it's 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 exactly it's it's wrong-headed in some ways, perhaps. But but it doesn't matter. Definitely. I mean, and it doesn't matter that the distinction between the studium and the punctum is 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 made. You know, when he's talking about the photograph, is ultimately you know not that interesting. It's not the concepts in, in Barth that are that are necessarily so arresting. I remember a few years ago, I was I was writing I was writing a piece about about Roland Barth and about his life and, and re- rediscovering his work, and the thing that struck me was how disarming. Mm-hmm. his 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 writing is especially his late writing and the there's a shyness and a tenderness in it and um you feel there's a, there's an intimacy uh to his writing and it's and so it's it, it it lends itself to a different kind of reading than than someone like Foucault, for example, who who rarely reveals anything of himself. Although I think he's very present in his writing. Yeah,
2: I think what you say about, about tenderness is very nice and, and shyness. That's part of what, what I think one, one likes about it, is, is, is that he's, he's, he's very intelligent. He's got all kinds of things to say, but he's never, he's never preaching to you, or there's no sense of a sermon. And even, even at some points, he's, he seems almost too, too unpolitical. Like, you know, he didn't, he didn't do anything about it. in 1968. He was busy hiding away. <laughs> he was not supporting the students and so on. He,
1: this, he was certainly, I think he was, pro- he was probably the most bourgeois French theorist. Exactly.
2: <laughs> but there's something about that quality of, uh, of not pontificating, saying, saying the sort of things that other people pontificate about, but not pontificating. So he says about when, in that memoir about his mother, he says she didn't have any opinions. And there's something about that. I think he, he he means dogmatic opinions, sententious opinions. That
1: he called that. He, he called that doxa. I think. Doxa.
2: And he didn't have any. He didn't have any opinions. It's true of him. It's a kind of epigraph. You know, epigraph for him. He didn't have any opinions either. Like he, every opinion you have is something to be examined and moved on from.
1: One of the sort of the, the, the later discoveries in French theory, I think, was was, uh, was Gilles Deleuze, whom mm-hmm. Foucault had described as the probably perhaps the most important philosopher of, of of that era. Why do Why do you think it took so late so it took so long for people to 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 see the significance of, of Deleuze's writing?
2: I don't really know. I, I, it's, it's a very good. It's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that, Adam. Because it certainly, it certainly happened. Uh, because he, you know, he was interested in everything. He read about Proust. He read about Bergson. He read, he read about two wonderful <laughs> volumes about the cinema, and then he wrote the stuff, with the, the great stuff, with with uh, with the But I, th- I, I, don't know what that was. Maybe, maybe the stage was just you know, the, the stage was full. You know, there were people there already. I don't know. I do remember that. I remember I was at Columbia. I remember when when the name started to appear, but it was quite late in the day. Uh, very interesting. When Lantier Deep was the book that really made him famous, and, and so maybe his other work was thought to be too uh, too too academic, not different enough from from the mainstream. I don't know. He certainly is different, and certainly very powerful stuff. And he has a lot of followers now. He's he's one of the, the French philosophers who's still most probably the one most most influential influential in, in current younger among younger people.
1: We were talking earlier about the critique of. Western reason, the critique of of of, of Eurocentrism in Lévi-Strauss and, and Derrida and Foucault. And I just thought that, that we should talk a little bit about the way in which uh, theory uh, uh, goes from being a movement of, of predominantly uh, white European thinkers, mostly, although not all of them male, uh, to being a, uh, a a very kind of diverse uh, movement of uh, writers from, you know, various parts of the world, often from places like India and Africa and Latin America. I mean, theory eventually uh, uh, sort of widens into... Uh, a kind of post-colonial or post-Occidental critique with many different uh, global iterations.
2: Yes, I, I think what happened there was I think with certain people, obviously, people like uh, Gaethje Spivak and Homi Baba came from the world of theory. I mean, they, they, and and for that matter, Edward Said was a, was a was a you know was it was purely literary theory man uh, Conrad a literary theory man before he wrote Orientalism, and so that the, they 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 I think it was a kind of it was a kind of education in a way, for all of those people to education in thinking, and, and it was where the interesting thinking was going on, and then they moved on to other things. But there were other currents, of course. There were Indian intellectuals there were I mean, in India there were there were there, were, uh, there was an interest in sociology there was interest in, in ways of thinking about the world and and the and the notion uh, there were people interested in Gramsci, which where they got the notion of the the Subaltern story comes from comes from Gramsci, and that was interesting because a lot of I think this must have been a reaction within the theory world. Because a lot of it, it seemed, particularly the, the work, the, the work was uh, uh, especially involved with deconstruction. Often took on a, a really not just a non-political, but kind of anti-political view. He we was just busy doing a, comp- making life complicated. You know? <laughs> and, and I think even someone like Edward Sayyid got fed up with that, and and he felt Dehida would be some kind of become kind of quietist, or not not active enough, and so
1: on. Uh, and I think a lot of people felt that. Which which turned out which turned out which turned. Which actually turned out not to be true, because in the, the la- in the latter phase of his career, Derrida was was actually quite eloquent on a on a number of of political issues from uh, Czechoslovakia, apartheid, Israel, Palestine. But but to come back to to Edward Said, um, as you mentioned, he became uh, he became a bit frustrated uh, by what he saw as the limitations of French theory, which he'd written about uh, brilliantly in, in his book Beginnings. Mm-hmm and and he, so he decides that 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 uh Foucault needs to be supplemented by Gramsci and yes. and that's where that that and that's orientalism orientalism is a work that that's that integrates Foucault Foucault and Gramsci yeah. what 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 do you think was missing for 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 Edward Said um, in the French theory that it obviously, uh, electrified him when he was a young scholar.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't see, I don't think that's, I don't think, uh, what he thought was missing Foucault, I don't think was missing Foucault. I think it was implied <laughs> in Foucault and that, that you could find it there if you, if you thought about it hard enough, but I think he felt that that the, there was a kind of, um, there was something quite conservative about about Edward's uh, theory, and at some point, I think he wasn't—you know—he didn't—he didn't want everyone just to sp- speak, speak in platitudes and plain speech, but he wanted people to connect uh, to some some real world. And I think he he had his days. I mean, the days when he was writing beginnings, he was giving lectures about Lacan, and he he was in in America at that time. He was one of the few people who were explaining all these difficult people to to the rest of us, you know, and. Uh, that was very powerful stuff, but I think at some point he, he the moment he moved into the Gramsci world there, there, there had to be some kind of political connection uh, fairly immediate and I would have thought Foucault really had that connection but I think I think uh, Edward knew that too but after he, for the writing, I think he didn't have it
1: I suspect and I, I may be wrong Michael and I but, I but I very much wonder what you think about this, but I suspect that one of Edwards' reasons for placing a little daylight between himself and uh, Foucault uh, is that he he didn't have such a pejorative view of humanism, or of the or the idea of the human subject, and I think he worried that the critique of 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 the human subject in Foucault uh, could be uh, injurious to radical political thinking, the radical political imagination that he found in Gramsci a celebration of mass struggle and not just a kind of fetishization of particular movements, prisoners, gays, etc. I think he he felt that Gramsci's uh, radical humanism was more congenial to what he wanted to do. Uh, what, What do you think of that?
2: I think that makes a lot of sense, Adam. And I think the, I think Edward and other people felt this about, I mean, about Foucault, which is that he had a view of the system, and and, and also Foucault was thought to be a pe- a pessimist, a man who actually thought the world was a, it, that it was impossible, you know, that he sounded as if he thought there was nothing to be done except sort to of complain about power. And I think that's wrong. I, I think he was. Compl- I think the idea was not to complain, but to do something about it. And that's. I think that's clearly implied in the work. But I think he, a lot of people felt a lot of historians. I think who who owe a lot to Foucault. Uh, in the end, think he's, he's he is he's, he, he does have opinions, so to speak, and unlike Bout, and they think the opinions are wrong. opinions. There's no point in, in as were, reverse celebration of the of the infinite range of of uh, political power, and just in small attacks on it. Mm.
1: Well, I think this is um, this is where you have to you have to juxtapose the um, the pessimistic or even cynical accents uh, in Foucault's work with the record of his uh, of, of of Foucault as a public figure. Because if Foucault had been so cynical about the possibility of change in society, why would he have devoted so much energy to Struggles against uh, repression in prisons, or uh, the, the many demonstrations that he went on. I mean, the, one of the oddities of Foucault's career is that he he he, he emerges as the, the 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 kind of paradigmatic anti-Sartrean, the critic of the universal intellectual, and yet it's Foucault who's constantly on the barricades.
2: Yes, yes it's true. I I think it's sort of I think it's a question of, of of in a way how to read. I think where. Where, if you read, if you read literally, you could read him as a kind of uh, a brilliant prophet of despair, nothing, nothing to be done. But, it, but he can't think that, and I don't think I don't think you have to read it that way. I, I, you could read that this uh, the, the situation is despairing if we don't do something about it, and that. But that is not he's not telling us what to do. He's telling us how how right. bad things are. Right.
1: I mean, in some in some ways, the most I think the most pessimistic of the French theorists is probably Lacan. I mean, he he I I think his 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 understanding of human subjectivity is is profoundly dispiriting.
2: It is, it is, it is dispiriting, and I and I don't think also Lacan didn't. I mean, you you'd have if you wanted to rescue Lacan from from the the kind of accusation of pure uh, despair and pessimism, you'd have to sort of think about all all the epigrams and remarks and think what you can. The kind of play you could you could get out of them, but certainly there's nothing. There's no there's no message in there of any kind of optimism.
1: One of the things that that happened, and we're still. I mean, I think we're still seeing the 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 aftershocks of it to some extent. Is that a the resistance to theory took the form of saying theory is um relativistic theory doesn't believe in believe in truth uh, and and now of course you know in in recent years uh we've been treated to various articles suggesting that the the far right has uh has embraced uh quote unquote postmodernism and that, yes. that theory theory is somehow responsible for 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 tr- for trumpism yes, yes. it strikes me as a as an intellectually utterly fatuous argument because I do think that 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 Foucault and, and Derrida, uh, uh, even as they critiqued what Foucault called truth regimes, actually did believe in, to some extent, in speaking truth to power. They
2: did. They did. I think. The, I think the 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 Derrida and and, and Foucault certainly. Uh, believed that uh, truth was difficult and that uh, anybody who thought it was easy or thought they already had it should think again that's but that's quite different from claiming there is no truth or not believing in truth the man i think sometimes wrote as if he as if he knew there was no truth he was not quite as he was very subtle and you can still read his work with with you know great pleasure and you can learn a lot from it so whatever he was like, the work is, is very impressive. But he he was often a little bit dogmatic about his own doubt, so to speak. So you could, and many of his followers actually speak in that way, where doubt becomes actually a form of security. You actually know that there's nothing. You know that nothing is true, which is which is we actually is, it's, it's very naive, and and very dogmatic. Would have been to 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 not be sure that anything is true is quite different from knowing that nothing is true
1: right which i think is also a reminder that 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 theory had you know was never one thing it had many faces i mean i my first uh, introduction to it came through two figures who could hardly have been more different one was uh was Rosalind Krauss, a professor of mine when I was an undergraduate, uh, with whom I studied uh, modernism, and who whose whose approach to theory was was exceptionally uh, rigorous and systems oriented, and and you know brilliant but also quite orthodox and then later in the after, later in the afternoon i would learn about uh, french theory from silver Lotranger, the founder of semiotext uh who was a friend of paul virilio and deleuze and guattari and whose idea of theory was uh, was was utter anarchistic subversion it was the it was the <laughs> the, the, the negation of everything i'd been taught that morning so
2: yeah Sylv- Sylvain was the person who, f- from whom i heard first heard about Deleuze but uh, and Gattari, uh, Lantier, i first i heard him he was at colombia then I, when i was there and uh, from him i first heard about uh about Lantier deep and other matters Wonderful and he guy. brought
1: them he brought the, he brought them to colombia
2: yeah so, yeah, that is very interesting. And I think and it's interesting, too, to think of theories having these many, many different ranges. There was a case, I think of Ross Cross. I think of my friend and colleague, Hal Foster at Princeton, who, who made some remark about people, they don't do theory like, like they used to. And for some reason, Colm Tabin and I made up a, uh, a poem on the subject, which was published in the LRB about the, the regret. Uh, it's a double-dactyl poem
1: you you said something earlier that i think was rather striking about about truth being difficult and it, it occurs to me that um the best kind of theoretical writing stages the drama of that struggle and that what what unfortunately happened when theory was institutionalized especially um in uh american uh, united states uh, literature departments is that theory goes from being this questioning mode of thinking always in pursuit um, in, in this kind of intellectual struggle uh, to being uh, applied as the kind of dogma that, that Roland Barthes would have resisted. And I do think this is one of the reasons that, that, that Edward, Edward Said, uh, became so frustrated with the reign of theory that suddenly it was just a set of received truths.
2: Yeah, I think it's absolutely right, and because it's, it's easy to make it, you know. And I think it's, but that that was what, that's one of the reasons why I think the, the lack of real philosophical input in a lot of that. that the, I mean, literature being allowed to get away with stuff on their own with no correction was sort of quite damaging. I remember at, at being at a uh, a, a, a station defence at Columbia sometime in the in the seventies uh, when someone was uh, with some a young person had got hold of the idea of, of being against the essences. And There were no essences, and so on, and everything. It is all completely wrong. Uh, and the, the, the philosopher in the room at that time said, "You mean, you mean uh, that things don't just uh, fit their labels exactly, like in jam jars or whatever it is?" And the student said, "Yeah, that's what I mean." And the, the philosopher said, "Well, nobody's thought that since Plato." <laughs> So it's just sort of, you, it, often that, but the sophisticated, there's, uh, this would happen again and again, you can think of many, many examples, what the apparent sophistication of theory uh, turns out to be a form of naivety. It's, that's, even that's better than sheer complacency, but it, <laughs> but it can be improved on.
1: Yes. And in fact, it was, um, you know, th- there was a whole, I remember there was a whole, um, I remember the 19, in the 1980s. Uh, a number of books began to appear, essentially arguing that uh that the uh, discoveries of french theory um had been you know made many years earlier by uh the frankfurt school you know that that these that this was a kind of uh that that french you know that um that the French were simply late. Uh, to some of the ideas that that German and exiled German Jewish thinkers had been exploring for years, that if if you know, but but the but the French didn't have access to books like uh, Adorno and Horkheimer's Dialectic of Enlightenment.
2: That's cr- that's true, and I think that that reverse order is very interesting. I mean, uh, uh, it, it was it took a people a long time to find that, with, that we were learning in reverse order of many of those people. We learned about the French, Valls and Derrida and Foucault before we learned about Benjamin. And then we learned about Benjamin before we learned about Jacobson, and so we found our way back through. It's like a, like a reverse trail.
1: Michael, tell me before we close. I wanted to ask you: uh, Is theory being read today in the university? Because I, I have the sense that it's that its moment to some extent has passed, and that people are less interested in it now.
2: I think on on the whole, I think. Um, it, it's a little hard to to some of it. I mean, there are two, two answers, I think, Adam. One is that much theory has been absorbed, and so it is it is present everywhere, but no longer identified as a separate entity. So, some theory has been taken aboard and part of. So, for example, the, without theory, there would be no new historicism. For example, it's not an anti theory movement. it's a, it's a it's something that tries to take theory back into history, but they had to get, they had to be with Foucault before they left him, so to speak. Uh, that's one answer and the other answer I think is that is that it's not being looked at now as much as it should be I mean sporadically you find people discovering things and going back to things but I think that they, there's not not quite enough uh, academic interest in, in what used to be theory you know so that um, so par- partially it's had its day and it's and it sort of won by seeping into things and partly there's a lot of things a lot of stuff left to be to be discovered and thought through again Particularly I'm particularly all these major major writers in Deleuze, Foucault, Derrida, and and so on, David Strauss. There, there's a lot a lot in there that we that we I think we we absorbed too quickly and then we we we, you know, we paraphrased it and we used the paraphrase instead of going back to the real thing.
1: I think going back to the real thing is is, is uh, really important whether or not we put quotations around real. And uh, and I think that you know uh, 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 yet another reason why uh, their why their work and I'm here I'm thinking especially of, of Foucault is so important is that they uh, addressed uh, a question that many of us are thinking about today and that is the question of confinement. I mean, you know, Foucault is someone who's writing about prisons and clinics and hospitals and and uh, and j- and also just the experience of of the kind of traps that we get ourselves into, you know, whether it's the traps imposed by discursive systems or racism or gender prejudice. I mean, these are things that were central to the thinking of a lot of French theorists. How do we, how do we free ourselves? Is it even possible to free ourselves?
2: Roland Barthes, a good example of this question of, 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 uh, of continuing the questions and, and keeping, rethinking questions like confinement hours, is that there's a good example. If you think of him in his early work, he he, like many people, he was, and like Sartre, that matter was was uh, uh, or Brecht. He was a, a, an exposer of, of ideologies and mythologies. You you, uh, you discover the the illusory truth that people have, and you tell them it's illusory.
1: You're thinking you're thinking of his book Writing Degree Zero. A, a book. I'm thinking of mythologies. I think of mythologies oh, mythologies, Sure, of course, mm-hmm. yes.
2: Yeah, where, where he would say, well, "What's the myth of?" you know, that Some of those were very comic and very funny, and some of them were rather deep. But they were all they're all to do with illusions that we that we've taken to be true and are living with as if they were true. Uh, and he calls it calls them mythologies. But later he he clearly understood that you can't actually get rid of a mythology by people telling people it's a myth. You can only get rid of it by replacing it with a better myth. And then, because there the isn't the a simple, because the, the if, you, or if you like to go back to the question of the truth, you could replace a myth that was, was false by a myth that had a lesser, less, uh, a lower quantity of falsity in it.
1: And then later on, you'd need a
2: different one. And then you'd need, then you'd need a different one. And you wouldn't be, at a, at each time you, there would be a gain in truth, I think, but there would be no, you wouldn't simply arrive at some simple thing called the truth and it would all be over. You just have to keep working.
1: The myth of Sisyphus, in a way. <laughs>
2: yes, it is, in a way, yes.
1: Right. Yeah. Michael, uh, thank you so much for joining me to talk about, uh, about theory. Uh, your essay in this new volume, uh, The Meaninglessness of Meaning, which gave it its title, on uh, Roland Barthes, is, is, is a delight. And, and it's been such a pleasure uh, talking to you. And, and thank you, everyone, for, for joining us on the LRB podcast.
0: Thanks, Adam. A real pleasure. You can buy the book discussed in this episode, The Meaninglessness of Meaning, on the LRB store for just £5.99, where you'll also find the other seven volumes in the LRB collection series and much more. Go to lrb.me forward slash theory. That's lrb.me forward slash theory. And if you use the code COLLECT8, that's the number 8, at checkout, you can buy all eight LRB collections for just £40. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen.